because it used to be before this that if a journalist was taken hostage, they would be held and either traded for some kind of ransom, whether it was money or weapons or other prisoners. But with Al-Qaeda, that didn't matter to them. What they wanted to do was show force. They wanted to show the United States, we call the shots here. We don't we don't like what you're doing. We don't like who you are. And we, you know, we will go to the lengths of death. Welcome back to The Plot, a show about writing and writers. I'm Sean Douglas, and thanks to everyone who tuned in for the premiere of this new show two weeks ago. For this episode, I'm excited to be joined by playwright and journalist Winter Miller. Miller is a widely produced playwright and has also written extensively for The New York Times, along with pieces in New York Magazine, The Boston Globe, Variety, and The Brooklyn Rail. She was an assistant to multi-Pulitzer winning journalist Nicholas Kristof, In the mid-2000s, she traveled with her former boss to the Sudan border for research on what eventually became her best-known play, In Darfur. In Darfur premiered at the Public Theater, followed by a standing-room-only performance at their 1,800-seat Delacorte Theater in Central Park, a first for a play by a woman. She was a founding member of the Obie Award-winning playwriting collective 13P and has taught widely at universities, places like New York Theater Workshop and the Sundance Institute, as well as refugee camps in northern Uganda and Palestine. In 2016, her play Spare Rib was read an event, presented by Gloria Steinem, Samantha Bee, and others, honoring Christian OBGYN and abortion provider Dr. Willie Porter, and raised $20,000 in one night for Southern abortion clinics. Miller's newest play, No One Is Forgotten, is about two women imprisoned under unknown circumstances. It was inspired by the many recent stories of journalists captured abroad, and runs off-Broadway at Rattlestick Playwrights Theatre from July 8th to the 27th. I'll let Miller explain more about the play herself, so here she is for our talk on the current geopolitical climate, what we can do to keep journalists safe, and how she ran a particularly successful Kickstarter campaign to make the play possible. One tip, it helps to have a very cooperative cat. Hi Winter, thanks for being on the plot today. How are you doing? Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here in our separate living rooms. Now, I know you've gotten this question a lot, but I'll just start with the most basic one. What is No One Is Forgotten about, and why did you choose to write about this? Well, I mean, the you know, the sort of log line for it is uh, Lolly and Bang are somewhere in the world being held in a room. They don't know where they are. They don't know how long they've been there. They don't know if they're ever getting out. This is a story about survival and intimacy and will. So in that sense, there's something very uh, Brechtian about people who are uh, trapped, but the stakes are really, really high. Um, They don't know, you know, they don't know if they're ever getting out. And that changes your ability to function. And a good deal of time has passed. But to me, the play is also about long-term intimate relationships and those feelings when the lines blur uh, between you two about what is my space, what is yours, what's inside your head, and if I want to know it, 
what happens if I go after it? And you say, no, no, this is, these are my inner thoughts. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. also being in that kind of relationship where, you know, you're watching television and you just take the other person's legs and prop them up on your knees and give them a little foot massage because it's like, in some ways, there's a feeling of uh, their body is my body, my body is their body. So it's about loving someone and also wanting to, at times, um, throttle them or something. And why I wrote it is, I mean, the thing is, I didn't intend to write it. So I sort of say that this play either wrote me or wrote itself, and I was just along for the ride. Uh, what I had set out to write was a a very mainstream rom-com. I wanted to write a story about they were going to be a heterosexual man and a woman. I was going to try to hit all the, the demographics and... Uh, you know, it would it would be something, you know, silly and fun, and it would be two people in a single set and very easy for any theater to produce in this time of, you know, small budgets, small casts, etc. But what happened was that when I began it, it took on its own story, its own narrative, and I just agreed to go along and say, I don't know, I don't know where this is, I don't know who these people are, I don't know where we're going, but okay, let's see what happens. So that's the sort of the mechanics. But the underlying thing is that for years, I had been thinking about journalists and what happens when they are taken uh, hostage and held. What do they do to pass the time? How do they just how do they survive? Um, And it's, you know, it's one thing if uh, four of you are taken, it's one thing if one of you is held alone, like, it's just it's very Um, It's very different, but it's also different for what kind of person you are. And I started thinking about this um, a number of years ago, and I was thinking about um, the journalist Daniel Pearl, who was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and and many people saw the horrendous way in which he was executed by al-Qaeda. It was sort of the first uh, footage that we saw on video of... um, you know, a man in a hood um, being decapitated. And it was just frightening in the sense of just watching someone do this and watching this happen was just, you know, an awful, awful thing. But I found it chilling in the the resulting um, the resulting feeling of what came after. Because it used to be before this, that if a journalist was taken hostage, they would be held and either traded for some kind of ransom, whether it was money or weapons or other prisoners. But with Al-Qaeda, that didn't matter to them. What they wanted to do was show force. They wanted to show the United States, we call the shots here. We don't, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like who you are. And we, you know, we will go to the lengths of death. And so I felt like if you're a journalist and now you've seen that, you've seen that the game has changed. The rules are all not what you thought they were. You may have thought that as a Westerner, you had some kind of um, cultural or imperialist immunity because of your passport or um, the color of your skin, if you're white or your gender, if you're male um, or, you know, perhaps female that you might be protected. But 
that was over in a very quick moment. And so I was working uh, beginning in 2004. I'd, I'd worked at the New York Times before, and I went back, and I was working as a, a researcher for um, Nicholas Kristof, who was often traveling uh, internationally. And I just started to wonder about what is the fear that drives people to do this kind of work, but also is sort of terrifying if you let yourself really think about it. Yeah, that feeds right into my next question, too, which is that I know that you've done um, a certain amount of traveling for your own work. And have you seen or felt kind of the temperature in the world changing? Like, have you found yourself in situations that just felt like this is not how it used to feel um, in this area? I mean, it's not it's not so much about going to repeat places, but there's this strange thing about traveling internationally where on the one hand, you feel like, wow, I really appreciate the freedoms that I have and the luxuries that I have. And on the other hand, you know, you think, I guess I'll say it this way. Sometimes when I'm in the United States, all I can think about is all the horrible things that we do as a country to ourselves and to other people. And that when traveling abroad, what I find is um, this feeling of, well, the U.S. is not so bad after all compared to X, Y, or Z, but then also seeing up close the effects of what the U.S. does to other countries with our style of colonialism or our, you know, what we, what we export in terms of, uh, you know, we, our biggest export is Hollywood, but how do we show um, what people are like? You know, Hollywood does not reflect, uh, it doesn't reflect me as a human or many people I know, but I started to realize that when I was in international situations that I was tempted to say that I was Canadian, particularly Mm -hmm. if I felt threatened, you know, because there's not animosity towards Canada, but you can feel the animosity towards the United States because we've just been so heavy footed about where we start actual wars or proxy wars Um, So people, you know, people hate us, you Mm -hmm. know, they want, they certainly want many of the things that we have, and plenty of them don't want that, but they hate us for what we've done, our, our, our sort of political hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. We can have nuclear weapons, but you can't, we, you know, all of this stuff that makes us more and more hated. And I think that that uh, ramped up after 9-11 with this misplaced a war war on Iraq it, it was just it was so apparent how out of hand the United States was so for people who hear these issues I feel like especially with the vulnerability of journalists or you know challenges to press freedom I feel like it's an issue that's more abstract and kind of like the day-to-day level because we can take certain actions in our own lives to at least do our own little tiny part in fixing a lot of issues but that's one that feels very removed. It feels very out there. What would you recommend people look into or supporting as a way to try to support journalists um, and their safety? Um, that is something that's accessible toward people like in their everyday life. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, one thing is, you know, subscribe to the newspapers uh, that you value. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, whether it's, you know, the New York Times or the Guardian or, you know, places like ProPublica um, or Vox, you know, that uh, it takes a lot of money to put people into international situations. And so as newsrooms have cut their staff, there are fewer people able to cover fewer places. So that's part of it is where you see uh, what you think of as good journalism, support that effort with your, with your dollars and, you know, with your, you know, with your time of what is it that they're writing about? How are they telling the stories? There are also organizations that can be supported, like um, the Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ, um, Reporters Without Borders, um, uh, Penn World Foundation, uh, these type of places, you know, or Amnesty International. Uh, actually, Amnesty has uh, is constantly publishing reports about reporters from all over who are being held. But also, really simply, you know, speak out for, get aware of what's happening in our own country. Most people don't know that currently the United States is the fifth most dangerous country in the world for journalists. We yeah. have a president who threatens journalists, who says, you know, he said the other day to, I think it was a Time reporter, you know, you you, you write that and I'm going to put you in prison. And the thing about Trump is that he says these things that sound absolutely ludicrous and then he goes about trying to do them um or he says you know journalists are the enemy and it just makes things less safe for our journalists so part of it is push back against that narrative and uh we haven't had a press briefing in more than a hundred days yeah that Mm -hmm. is astonishing and frightening so part of it is just saying to each other like whoa this is happening and we can't sit idly by what are we going to write our you know our congress people are we going to write the white house are we going to support these organizations who are trying to change this um because the truth is that as a country we are only as free as our press are and right now there are a lot of restrictions on press and there's greater violence towards press, not just internationally, but nationally. And that is, you know, that's that's why I wanted to do the play right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote the play a couple years ago, but as I watched Trump's ascension to power and, and what was happening with, you know, people punching out journalists at Trump rallies or, you know, excluding them from the press pool, all of that stuff, I just thought... The time is now for this particular play because this is uh, an issue that is becoming on the radar of people, but should be there stronger and is frightening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like this is a good 4th of July conversation to be having. We're recording this on the 4th of July. You mean while the tanks are rolling through? Uh, Washington, D.C. in what will be a parade, but is really just perhaps a precursor to a coup in which Trump refuses to leave the White House, something like that? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's a a good day to take stock of sort of the pulse of our country right now. Mm -hmm. 
And you went about um, getting this play funded and getting the resources for this play very effectively. And um, I was a donor to the campaign. I, I thought it seemed like a, a really good project. Um, and you raised quite a bit to, to get this play on its feet very quickly. I'm curious how you went about that, because um, you did such a good job with it. And it's something that I think other, I, like, I'd love to see more theater companies try to do that and really get things that feel very of the moment, because it is harder to get theater to respond to things in quite that short a time frame. It is, and um, thank you for being a donor. And um, uh, and your video I, was hilarious, by the way. <laughs> Good. Uh, that seemed really important. We actually, uh, like, we shot it ourselves. Um, my co-producer Amanda Cooper and I, um, but um, we we hired this wonderful guy named Jordan Harrison, um, different name from Jordan Harrison, the playwright, to edit the video. And he, you know, helped us um, retain its quality of humor. But it also helps to have um, a very uh, obedient cat who will show up for, uh, you know, camera shoots. Um, But I wanted the video to be playful and funny because I wanted people to look at the campaign and actually be drawn to it rather than feeling like, oh no, here comes a heavy play, better take your medicine. Because the truth is that the play has a lot of humor in it. It's got a lot of gallows humor um, and there's silliness in it because what I have found is that sort of no matter how dire things are, when that goes on for a period of time, at some point you start to say things that you might not otherwise say in this sort of situation, but you have to, it's so absurd. You have to laugh or you just, you can't, your metabolism needs a change. Um, so in terms of um, the public crowdfunding, I mean, it was out of necessity. Theaters were determining their schedules and sort of saying things like, oh, well, you know, we could look at this for, uh, 2021 or 2023 or 2083. And so it just became apparent to me that as I looked at where we are in the world, that, you know, this was a play that I wanted in the world and would be um, the least expensive to produce. You know, I, I have a play that is also ready to go and has been um, called Spare Rib, which is about the history of abortion um, in this country, and uh, it has six characters and is more theatrical. And so I knew that the budget for that would be higher. So I thought, you know, these two things matter. What is the thing that I think that I can do first? And so I picked the one that was, you know, they're both timely. They're both, I think, important. They're certainly important to me. Um, but I picked the one with a single set and two characters to, you know, to, to get in the trenches with. And I started by mapping out a budget with a director friend of mine and, you know, soon realizing just how many things there were to think of that I just hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me. So I, you know, I made an estimate at what the budget might be. And then once I found a theater, things kicked into gear so much faster than anticipated. Um, it happened to be that Rattlestick had an availability in their schedule in July, and it happened to be that 
Rattlestick Theater was always a place where I envisioned doing the play, but I never actually thought that it was possible because their structure is a proscenium. And I knew that this play wanted to happen um, with audience on all four sides. But in December, Rattlestick moved their theater and took away the proscenium. I don't mean that they physically moved the building, but the interior, they changed the setup. And so it was now going to be a black box, but not one that was pristine like other black or white uh, black or white boxes. So when they had this place, sorry about the siren. Uh, when they had, you know, when they had this spot open, it was an immediate decision of me getting in touch with them and, and finding out, you know, could I do the show there? And what would the budget be? You know, how much would it be to rent it? And then from that moment saying, okay, what, what do I need to get in place in order to do it? And um, the way that that came about was I met up with a friend of mine, a wonderful veteran actor, um, Kathleen Chalfont, and she said, we had, and we had this very just wonderful tete-a-tete in which I said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And she said, you know, you know, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? What about this? And she just raised all of these great questions. And I thought, wow, you know, for, for an actor who I don't, you know, I haven't known to be on the producer side, she sure knows a lot. <laughs> and one of the things she said is, if you're going to do this, in the very short time that you have, it is the beginning of February and you're going to do this at the beginning of July. You need to prove that you can raise $20,000 in the next week to make this even be viable. And then, and then what she said is, and I'll be your first donor. And that just, you know, sort of in that moment, kind of, you know, my eyes got a little teary, like, yes, she was, you know, throwing down this major challenge, but she was also saying, I believe in you, you know, give it a, give it a go, see what you can do. And so with that just spark of her belief and commitment, um, I set about to raise uh, $20,000 within that first week. And on day six, uh, Kathy and I said, I did it. I've got it. And so you know, then it was on, then it was, how do I raise, you know, as much as I can as quickly as possible. And I knew that there would be, um, a, a crowdfunding piece to it. And I just set it up very strategically in a way of researching how do effective Kickstarter campaigns work? What, you know, what do you need? How do you go about it? And I looked at ones that had succeeded. Um, I got in touch with Kickstarter and asked, you know, what are your recommendations, et cetera. And so from that, I mean, I really approached this entire project kind of as a journalist would. I researched by interviewing a bunch of, you know, producers and directors to get, um, you know, who I wanted to staff the show, um, as well as what budget items did I need to be aware of. Um, and then the same for, you know, this crowdfunding, which platform would be the best? Did I want um, GoFundMe or Kickstarter? And um, I chose Kickstarter. And then I just made goals for how was I going to raise 
$30,000 in 30 days, which obviously is the need to raise $1,000 a day, which is ludicrous. I thought, I, wow, I don't even know how that's possible. But I just had to believe that it would be possible and that it was up to me to figure out how to put the pieces in place to do that, that it was going to happen. I wasn't going to get to uh, 15000 and then lose it all because I couldn't make it the rest of the way. So I just sort of set up things with pledges, with donors, that if people donated this amount, it would be doubled. Um, I sent out, um, you know, cat videos and, you know, tried to make it be an event, that it was a fun thing for people to watch. Um, and they were watching, you know, they were checking in to say, oh, I see, you know, looks like things are going well. And so there were just benchmarks, you know, how much you need to earn in the first 48 hours predicts how well your campaign will go. And in that first 48 hours, we actually didn't get quite to the mark of, of what they suggest. Um, we've got, I mean, we got to the sort of the lowest, the lowest mark of that. Um, the, the suggested is between 20% and 30% of your, the entire amount that you want to earn. And so we were, you know, probably 23%. And um, it just was a lot of time. I had some help um, in terms with sending thank yous to people immediately and just trying to be organized about that so that I could be the public face and saying, this is what we're doing. This is why. Please donate. Um, I'm sure that people who went on my Facebook page were like, oh, God, another update or contest or whatever. Um, but that's kind of what you have to do. There's no, there's no way around it. The surprise to me that uh, I absolutely did not expect was that it would feel good to reach out to people and ask them to support this project. As soon as I had that first conversation with Kathy and knew that I had to act quickly, I picked up the phone and just started calling people. Um, and I am not a huge fan of, of using the phone to call people, but um, I, I just felt like this has to be, this can't be a text, it can't be an email, and I don't have time to, you know, meet for a coffee with um, everyone or really much of anyone. There are a few people I could meet for coffee. Um, but so I started calling people up and I would just, you know, I'd say hello, we'd do some talk, maybe catching up, maybe I hadn't talked to them in, you know, six months or three months or, you know, uh, some amount of time and just sort of catching up on our lives, which was great. You know, it was really great to have that personal connection of, oh, yeah, I, I remember you. You remember me. This is we're friends. This is nice. Um, and then say, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. And if you would like to be um, a part of it and fiscally support us, I would love your support. And then I would either say something like, if you want to take a few days to think about it, I'll call you back. Um, or if you know what that number is, um, I could take a pledge from you and just write that down and I'll come back to you later once we are mid Kickstarter so that we can keep the momentum going. So it wasn't just about when Kickstarter started that I was looking for the, that funding. It was that in the, 
two weeks before I launched Kickstarter, I was calling people and lining up, um, you know, amounts to, to come in when I thought we needed a boost. Oh, but here's the other thing. What I found is that after I would sort of give my, my pitch, um, people would say, wow, that, that sounds amazing. Um, congratulations. And, uh, and they would say, you know, that's, that's great that you're directing it, that that seems right. This is wonderful. Um, and regardless of whether they decided to pledge money, that just expression of confidence from them felt really good. You know, as a, a playwright or an artist, you get a lot of rejections. You certainly get a lot of no. And the no can come from anywhere. You might just open an email, forget that you applied for something and it's a no. Or there's something that you've been waiting on and you are a finalist, but then ultimately it's a no. And, you know, more often than not, it's a no than it is a yes. And you certainly have to savor the yeses, but those no's can, you know, pile up the longer you are in this industry. And to suddenly have 350 people saying some form of yes felt amazing it was this just adrenaline boost of being believed in and it wasn't about you know if person put in x amount of money that meant they believed in me more it was whether someone was putting in ten dollars or whether was someone was just saying i don't have the money right now but i am so excited for you and i wish that i could or whether it was someone who was saying, here's a big chunk of money, uh, I believe in you. All of those things felt like a yes, and I really welcomed that. That felt like um, I had a community around me. Yeah, I saw a lot of people, like playwrights and other people in the theater industry, were sharing it on Facebook and on Twitter, and that's how I discovered it, just through social media. And it seemed like it was it was always presented as something that was really professional even though it still had that personal touch to it. And I think that's part of what convinced me, like, I don't know you personally, but that, that is part of what was like, oh, this is something I can believe in. This is something that looks really well-organized. Like, I, I see enough theater companies all trying to crowdfund for their different things. Um, and you have to be kind of selective on what you choose. And, yeah. and this felt like it had the proof of concept because it had raised a certain amount of money already. It had a very clear vision and it was just that right combination of, of having that personal touch while also clearly being a project that was going to be well-organized, professionally done um, by people who were being very strategic about it. Good. That is, you know, that is in a nutshell exactly our intention and how we went about laying the groundwork and um, executing the mission. Mm -hmm. So if people want to see this play, where should they go and what should they do? They should... Uh, open up their uh, browsers and go to www.noonesforgotten.com and you can see our scheduled performances. Our first performance is July 8th. Our opening is July 12th and we close on July 27th. Um, the schedule is there and you can buy tickets there. Um, we also set up something where um, we wanted the tickets to be accessible. So one of the things of, of crowdfunding is to earn what we needed to be able to put this up so that we could also 
have the ability to offer a sliding scale. So the lowest price tickets are $10. The mid midway price tickets are 20 and the, uh, we call them VIPs are 40. So what we've suggested to people is buy the ticket that suits your, uh, you know, fiscal situation at this time, keeping in mind that there are, uh, people who, you know, don't mind paying more and people who really need to pay less. And so for every performance, we've set aside 10 $10 tickets and 30 $20 tickets, and then um, the remainder are 40 And we've, we've also made the house be very intimate. There are uh, about 56 seats, and all of that is on purpose to have this really intimate setting with these two people. At, at every step of the way, we've privileged the art that we're making over the amount of um, income or, um, you know, like there's, it's, this is not something for profit, obviously, but it's also not something to, you know, I can't afford to lose the shirt off my back. So it's not like I could put up the money to do this. But the values were that everyone, you know, that people get paid a living wage and we've stuck by that. And, you know, just over 50% of our budget is to pay people rather than spending it on uh, sets or uh, I don't who knows what um, gold toilet paper, but it's, we believed in the personnel as being crucial. So that's been, that's been cool to be able to both say we want theater to be accessible Here's how. And for the $10 tickets, when you go to the website, you just type in the number 10 and then in all capital letters, activist. So 10 activist. Um, and for the $20 tickets, you you can just order them. <laughs> they're, they're just on there saying $20. Uh, and if you've got the scratch for the 40, um, you know, that's wonderful too. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that a... Uh, live theater experience in which so much work and love has gone into can cost much less than a movie greatly appeals to me. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome. I will be sure to post all that information too in the description for this episode so people can easily link to that. Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for um, reaching out to me and, and asking me these great questions about the play. I appreciate the opportunity to let people know what we're doing and um, hopefully I will see your listeners at the theater. Happy 4th. Yeah. Enjoy the coup. (laughs) Yeah, you too. (laughs) That was playwright and journalist Winter Miller, whose new play, No One Is Forgotten, runs at Rattlestick Playwrights Theater in New York from July 8th to July 27th. You can learn more about Miller and get tickets to the play on her website, wintermiller.com. The Plot is a production for me, Sean Douglas, and if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite major podcast provider. You can also follow me on Twitter, at underscore SeanDouglas underscore, this show, at The Plot Podcast, or follow my work at SeanDouglas.com. Thanks again to Winter Miller. That's the show. And thank you for listening.